<clears throat> this is the second day of this June 2023 seven-day Sashin. And today we'll continue reading from the book, The Unborn, The Life and Teachings of Zen Master Banke, translated by Norman Waddell. Yesterday, we started with the story of Banke's remarkable life, beginning with his childhood. It seems he was quite the troublemaker. He was competitive and strong-willed, always trying to skip out of school, getting into quarrels with his oldest brother, who had stepped into the role of head of the house when their father passed away. And we left off yesterday at the point where Banke had been thrown out of the house at the age of 11. He became just so consumed by trying to understand the nature of bright virtue. Bright virtue being a Confucian ideal that he was taught in school. And again, we can see this term, bright virtue, as another word for our true nature. That which is beyond right and wrong, beyond duality. Eventually, Banke landed at a temple run by Master Umpo, and he trained there for about four years, and then he decided to leave. And at this juncture, Banke was still uh, a teenager, um, and he set out on pilgrimage, visiting various temples. But Waddell says, more often than not, he lived a solitary life in rude, self-made huts, or frequently, to judge from his own records, he merely slept out in the open. He was reported to live among beggars for several years in various places where he slept with nothing but reeds for a covering. He even sat for a week without eating. And then here's an excerpt from the historical records of Banke. And this is his personal account in his words, translated from Japanese. Banke said, I pressed myself without mercy draining myself mentally and physically. At times I practiced deep in the mountains, in places completely cut off from human contact. I fashioned primitive shelters out of paper, pulled them over me, 
and did zazen, seated inside. Sometimes I would make a small lean-to by putting up two walls of thick paper boards and sit in solitary darkness inside, doing zazen, never lying down to rest even for a moment. Whenever I heard of some teacher whom I thought might be able to give me advice, I went immediately to visit him. I lived that way for several years. There were few places in the country I did not set foot. Again, we see that determination. Uh, but he was still looking outside himself, grasping in the dark, looking for an answer to come through words through the instruction of a teacher or other people. But really, there, there's nothing that a Zen teacher can give other than encouragement and guidance in navigating what is sometimes a difficult terrain There was nothing a teacher can give and there's nothing a student can receive. And as for the difficult spots, it doesn't have to be difficult. If we expect practice to be difficult and painful, a struggle between me and my thoughts, then that's exactly what it will be because we're caught up in our expectations. Banke returned to Ampo um, after four years of practicing independently, wandering around the country, at times on his own and at other times seeking advice from others. And then Waddle uh, says, or Waddell, I think is the correct pronunciation. He says, he was 23 years old and still no closer to resolving the doubt and incertitude pressing in upon him. He is said to have been weeping in discouragement as he told Umpo how he had been unable to find a single person in all his travels who could give him the kind of help he wanted. Umpo's reply was, it's your desire to find someone that keeps you from your goal. It's your desire to find someone that keeps you from your goal. He was telling Banke that he would never be able to achieve enlightenment as long as he persisted in searching for an answer outside himself. The words seemed to have had their intended effect. Banke promptly left again. This time, he stayed nearby 
building a hermitage in the countryside. He isolated himself, completed from, complete from contact with the outside, walling himself up within a tiny dwelling. He sat constantly, day and night, dedicating himself with even greater urgency to Zazen. Resolved, just as the Buddha before him had been, not to get up until he had found the way through. He gave up eating for weeks at a time. He threw cold water over himself whenever he felt the slightest approach of the demons of sleep. But the long years of struggle had weakened him both physically and mentally. He contracted tuberculosis. And then in, in Banke's own words, he said, the adverse effects of the long years of, of physical punishment built up and finally led to a serious illness. My illness steadily worsened. I grew weaker and weaker. Whenever I spat, gouts of bloody sputum as big as thumb heads appeared. It's quite graphic. Once I spat against a wall and the globules stuck and slid to the ground in bright red beads. So he resorted to extreme measures, not unlike the ascetics of the Buddha's lifetime. And he became gravely ill. But remember, the Buddha came to see the middle way. Not denying oneself, but also not indulging in it. That's the most effective way to practice. Waddell says that when Banke's health failed to, to this rather extreme degree, the physician who examined him was reported to have thrown aside his medicine spoon because he was past the point where such remedies could be of help. So Banke basically got to the point where he had resigned himself to dying. His body was failing. There were no medical interventions that could help him. It seemed like there was no turning back. And it was at this darkest moment when Banke surrendered to dying, that everything changed. In his own words, I felt a strange sensation in my throat. I spat against the wall. 
a mass of black phlegm, large as a soap berry, rolled down the side. Suddenly, just at that moment, I realized what it was that had escaped me until now. All things are perfectly resolved in the unborn. All things are perfectly resolved. Right here. Everything clarified. When we go beyond beyond thoughts and words. So it was after 14 years of hardship and unbending determination that Banke had his first Kensho experience. And we only have the words to go by on the page, but it seems that this opening happened at the moment that he had given up looking outside himself. He saw that what he had been searching for all along was right there all along. Not two. He was no longer grasping for an answer. And he, he had resigned himself to being one with the conditions he was in. And at that moment, he was just dying. That was his condition just dying. There's a, a verse in the Mumonkan that says, you must climb a mountain of swords with bare feet. You must climb a mountain of swords with bare feet. Of course, this isn't to be taken literally. But we do need to put in the effort. And that effort is a simple one. Shifting our attention back to our practice. Each time we notice we've drifted off. That's what the effort comes down to, attention. And doing that in the midst of any and all conditions that we experience, including discomfort and pain, physical, mental, emotional, all of the above, but also feeling buoyant and light and energetic and everything in between, bored, tired, unmotivated, blah. 
But for many of us, due to deeply ingrained habits of mind, we seem to get caught up in the expectations of, of pain. Even, even thinking that Sashin has to be painful or else you're not trying hard enough. And as a consequence, we, we miss out on a lot. We're not showing up for the moment as it is. And we miss out on joy as a consequence. So to, to climb a mountain of swords is really just giving ourselves to our practice no matter the conditions, whatever we happen to be experiencing. It's a big, big mistake to think that we need to resort to extreme measures, to self-mortification, denying our body of its basic needs of food and sleep. And this is something Banke came to realize, just as the historical Buddha did. And it became the central point of Banke's teaching. We don't need to resort to such measures, let alone be on the brink of death, to realize that there's nothing we need to change, no special place we need to get to. All things are just as they are, perfectly resolved. Well, after this transformative experience, Banke's strength did gradually return along with his appetite and his health. And Waddell notes that he had a second Kensho not long after his first one. As he described it, when the fragrant smell of plum blossoms was borne to him on the morning breeze as he was washing his face in a nearby stream. In other words, in the most ordinary moment, just washing his face. It's so important to bring our practice into activity, to keep it continuous wherever, wherever we are, whatever we're doing taking a bite of food, putting on our robe, chopping vegetables, wiping up a spill, right there, that's our true nature.
Eventually, when Banke was strong enough to travel, he made his way back to see Master Umpo, his first teacher, to tell him what had happened. Umpo was overjoyed and said, that is the marrow of Bodhidharma's bones. And yet Master Umpo, the story goes, recommended to Banke that he seek verification of his, of his enlightenment from other masters. So then Banke went off again. The biography goes on to describe how he visited different teachers, but for the most part, he was unsatisfied with their responses. Waddell says what he discovered to his disappointment and a little to his disgust as well, was that none of the teachers he visited was in a position to give him the confirmation he was after. One of them even admitted to not yet having an enlightenment experience. And then in time, at around the age of 26, Banke came upon news of a priest who had arrived from China and was staying at a temple near Nagasaki. And Umpo encouraged Banke to make the week-long trip to visit this master. This master's name in Chinese is Dao She Xiaoyuan. In Japanese, it's translated as dosha. And during their first meeting, the Chinese master confirmed Banke's enlightenment, but also said that it was incomplete. He said, you have penetrated through to the matter of self, but you still have to clarify the matter beyond. There was still further to go. Not there yet. And Waddell writes to Banke, who was brimming with self-confidence, this was inconceivable. So at first, he refused to accept this master's evaluation. But he stayed at the temple and eventually came to see the merit of this teaching. After observing how Dao She Xiaoyuan conducted himself and how he gave instruction at the temple. So Banke took his place in the assembly, lived in the monk's hall with the rest of the students. And then it's uh, noted here that the, this Chinese master did not know Japanese and Banke could not speak Chinese, although Banke could read and write it. So they had to communicate by means of written notes. And in the process of working closely with this, this master, 
Banke had another Kensho experience. So the master then decided to appoint him to the position of senior monk, but Banke declined. Waddell notes that he wanted to work in the same old place near the kitchen. And so he continued doing his chores just as before, stoking the fire in the kitchen with fuel and serving the other monks their meals. And Waddell says some members of the assembly seem to have resented Banke's presence almost from the start. And that undercurrent of resentment erupted into strong feelings of jealousy. As soon as the master got wind of this, he met with Banke and asked him to leave the temple for a while until things quieted down. So we can only imagine all the rumors and gossip that was circulating. So Banke leaves and he travels to another place called Yoshino. And this is a, it says a sparsely populated area that was popular among mountain ascetics. Waddell says, while practicing in a solitary hut among the high hills and valleys, Banke composed a group of simple Buddhist songs for the instruction of the peasants with whom he had contact. In them occurs the first recorded instance of his using the word unborn in his teaching. Eventually, during a, an especially severe winter, though, Banke decided to return to, to see Master Umpo, to return to his first teacher again. It says he somehow knew through a kind of second sight that his old teacher Umpo was gravely ill, but he did not reach him in time. Umpo passed away the night before Banke arrived. Just before he died, the 85-year-old Umpo gave his successor, named Bokuo, Bokuo Sogyu, the following instructions. So this is Umpo's successor speaking. He said, I am certain that Banke is the one person who is capable of raising aloft the Dharma banner and sustaining the fortunes of Zen in the future. I want you in my place to push him out into the world. By no means should he be allowed to hide his talents. Actually, that was Umpo speaking, talking to Bo, Bokuo, so 
Bokuo Sogyu. I want you in my place to push him out into the world. Waddell then says, the story of Banke's life from this time on may be told rather simply. In 1657, four years after Umpo's death, Bokuo, in accordance with his master's dying wish, made Banke his official heir. And it's also noted that he received Dharma transmission from the Chinese master as well. So Banke had direct links to both a Chinese and a Japanese branch of Zen. For the next 36 years, Banke devoted his life to teaching at a number of monasteries and temples around Japan. And he delivered public talks to large crowds, often organized around the traditional three-month training period held in the summer and winter, the Ango. And from his late 50s onward, he worked on making daily practice and training periods accessible to all, people from all ranks and walks of life and denominations. And so to bring this uh, biographical account to a close. It was a few years later in 1693 that Banke died after a period of illness. Waddell says, several months prior to his death, Banke had stopped taking food. He had refused all medicines. A disciple asked if he would compose a death verse, traditional in the Zen school. And Banke replied, I've lived for 72 years. I've been teaching people for 45. What I've been telling you and others every day during that time is all my death verse. I'm not going to make another one now before I die just because everyone else does it. What I've been telling you and others every day is my death verse. What use are words? His death verse was simply being alive, being in a body.
each moment, we all die. Nothing's static, nothing's fixed. The song of birds, and then it's gone. And then another, gone. So just as we die each moment, we're also reborn. Each moment is a new one. Such that we can't distinguish between birth and death, arising and disappearing, coming and going. So after speaking those words about living his death verse, he passed away. He was reportedly in a seated position, lying on his right side like a Buddha, according to another. So that's all the biographical material on Banke. Now we'll turn to reading from one of his public talks. And we won't have time to get very far, but we'll at least dip our toes in. The preface to his talk says that in 1690, at the time of a winter training period at Ryumonji, there were nearly 1,700 people from all different Buddhist sects in attendance. Masters and novices alike and priests of every kind and rank gathered in a great assembly around the Dharma seat. So his, his talk begins. I was still a young man when I came to discover the principle of the unborn and its relation to thought. 
I began to tell others about it. What we call thought is something that has already fallen one or more removes from the living reality of the unborn. If you priests would just live in the unborn, there wouldn't be anything for me to tell you about it, and you wouldn't be here listening to me. But because of the unbornness and marvelous illuminative power inherent in the Buddha mind, it readily reflects all things that come along and transforms itself into them, thus turning the Buddha mind into thought. I'm going to tell those in the lay audience all about this now. And as I do, I want the priests to listen along too. So right from the start, he says, thoughts are removed to one or, one or more degrees from reality, from this. It's not what you think. That phrase, it's not what you think, is one of the translations of the word mu. It's not ideas, it's not words. Just this pure mind, unfiltered, free of mental constructs, pure, that's it. The teaching is finished. It's just this. Banke didn't say that we need to try to obtain the unborn, simply to abide in it, be in it, be in your body. It's not a mind state to get to. It's not a condition that we have to create. It's already who we are. And then he continues, not a single one of you people at this meeting is unenlightened. In other words, you lack nothing. Right now, you're sitting before me as Buddhas. Each of you received the Buddha mind from your mothers when you were born and nothing else. This inherited Buddha mind is beyond any doubt unborn with a marvelously bright, illuminative wisdom. And then he says, in the unborn, all things are perfectly resolved. I can give you proof that they are. 
while you're facing me, listening to me speak like this. If a crow cawed or a sparrow chirped or some other sound occurred somewhere behind you, you would have no difficulty knowing it was a crow or a sparrow or whatever, even without giving a thought to listening to it because you are listening by means of the unborn. As long as we're not dwelling in thoughts, we're listening by means of the unborn. This is the living proof. This one moment is the proof. We'll end here and recite the four vows.